Alright guys, good evening. Welcome to Impact. Um, if you were expecting Alan, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, so my name is Joe. If you are new here tonight, we're glad that you guys are here. Um, normally, Pastor Alan is here, but he is on vacation climbing rocks. So um, here we are. Uh, but tonight we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. So you can open up to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. And if you need a Bible or something, you can raise your hand and one of our leaders will bring one to you. And we're going to be in verse 5. So if you get a Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 5. So for those who have been with us, we've been going through the book of Daniel. Uh, last week we had a time of question and answer, and this week we're going to be taking a little uh, detour into 2 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, to talk about a topic that I hope will be uh, helpful to you as you try to navigate your Christian life and seek to live uh, faithfully and fruitfully. And um, next week, we have Thanksgiving on Thursday, and then we'll be joining back on Friday to have a time of dessert and just hanging out, as well as uh, a special message, probably centered around thanks, thankfulness, I think, of some sorts. So, looking forward to that. But tonight, like I said, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Is everybody there? Kind of? Majority? Mostly? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the uh, verses here. We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 through 12. And then we will pray, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into it, all right? So, again, 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 5. This is the Apostle Paul who is writing, and he says this. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while." Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and um, Lord, we thank you for this passage, Lord, as it teaches us the vital importance between the difference of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand that this evening. Lord, that we would be able to apply it to our lives. We ask that you would join us now. We love you and ask this in your precious name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Well, I want to start this evening with a story. Because as I was thinking about this passage here, 
and one of the, the central topic here, uh, I was thinking back to a time when I was in sixth grade. And for those of you, this may be familiar to, do, to you, but I remember in sixth grade science class, every Friday, we would have a terms quiz. And what would happen is our teacher would stand at the front of the classroom and she would read out a science term and we were required to write down what term it was. And on this particular Friday, I unfortunately had forgotten to study. But being the type A overachiever that I was, I was, digged, I was very much making sure I did not fail. I would do anything to make sure that I got an A. And so because, you know, in a science class you sit at lab tables, so there was three of us all sitting at one table, and the teacher began, she began to read the different terms out, and, you know, me, being in middle school, thought I was very slick, you know, so I'm stealing glances out of the corner of my eye. I think that no one notices how obvious I am, but I think I'm doing a pretty good job. We get to, through the whole quiz, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I think I've successfully copied every answer from my neighbor without my teacher knowing. So I hand in the quiz, and, and I'm feeling pretty good. Well, later that day, lunch comes around, and uh, my teacher calls me to her office. And I, I know, I know that the, the chase is up. So I go into her office, and she lays out the two quizzes before me. And unfortunately, she was smart enough to realize that me and the person right next to me got all of the same answers right and wrong. What a coincidence, I thought to myself. Well, apparently she didn't think it was a coincidence. She lays it out on me, and she says, Joe, I'm giving you a zero, and I'm sending a conduct report home to your parents. And I start crying. I start crying. Because I... I just can't bear this, right? So I'm crying, I'm begging her, I'm saying, please, for the love of all things that is lovely, please don't, don't send something home to my parents, because the only thing I fear worse than a zero is my parents. So I am just desperately hoping that, you know, we can, we can work this thing out, right? Um, but she's not seeing things my way, so I'm crying, I'm begging her, please, just, I'll, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'll take the zero. You don't have to let anybody know about this just between me and you, right? And if, if you were to come into that classroom at that time, you would think that I was truly sorry, that I was truly repentant over what I had done, I, right? I had tears on my face. I was literally saying, I will never do this again. I was asking for her to forgive me. And if you, you see all these outward signs, and they point to somebody who is truly repentant. Yeah, a funny thing happened. A couple years later, I changed schools. I was in a new high school. I had a new science teacher, and I was cheating again. What went wrong, right? I, I said I'd never do it again. I seemed like I was very upset and truly repentant over it, and yet a couple years later, I'm doing the same thing, and I don't really seem to, to care. Because it's a different school, it's a new teacher, and nobody knows. And I'm cheating on my science quizzes again. And I think that this, I tell you this story because it illustrates the point that although I had this appearance of sadness, right? If you were to come into the room, you'd be like, man, this guy is really upset about what he did. Like, man. And yet, I was not truly repentant for what I had done. And this shows us the point that not all of our tears come from the same well, right? Not all of our tears are created equally. And as we, as we look at the main point of our passage here tonight in verse 10, we're going to kind of unpack this and see what I mean when I say that not all of our tears come from the same well. 
But before we do that, it's important for us to understand where are we at in this book, 2 Corinthians, right? We've just started in the middle of a book, in the middle of a chapter. So I just want to give us some orient, orient us a little bit to where we are. So this is 2 Corinthians, right? And for those who know math, if there's a 2 Corinthians, there's probably a 1 Corinthians, and you'd be right. So this is the second letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. But in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul had went and visited this church. So the, the church of Corinth, he had planted himself. He was their spiritual father, if you will. And Paul had gone to the church of Corinth in between these two letters. And when he had shown up, he was excited to see them. And all of a sudden, this guy, there was a guy, we don't necessarily know who it is. Some people speculate. But he opposed Paul. And he pretty much said, Paul, you're a fake. You're not an apostle. Get out of here. We don't want you here. And what was happened was in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, you guys didn't even stick up for me, right? So you imagine Paul shows up, this guy like pretty much rejects him, and the rest of the Corinthians are like, yeah, don't know that guy. Yeah, Paul, who's Paul, right? And so Paul is just heartbroken, right? He's, he's labored to help these people start a church, and he's been rejected by them. And so we're told that Paul writes this severe letter, and he pretty much rebukes them and says, guys, what is, what's up with that? You know, you have to repent for what you have done. And so Paul writes this, this uh, letter, and here, where we're, where we're at right here in 2 Corinthians 7, in verse 5, it says that when we came to Macedonia, right? Paul is in Macedonia, and he is waiting for Titus, who is in Corinth, to return with news about how the people responded to this letter. And so what chapter 7 is, is it, it's, it's telling us how the people responded to this severe letter. So that's kind of where we're at here in chapter 7. And this evening, as we look at it, I want us to notice three things in particular. I want us to notice, first of all, Paul's rebuke. Secondly, the people, the Corinthians' response. And thirdly, the results. So the rebuke of Paul, the response of the people, and the results of their response. So let's notice first, Paul's rebuke. In verses 8 and 9, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. What I want you guys to notice here is that Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians was motivated by love. Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians was soaked in graciousness. He says in verse 5, right, he says, on the outside there were conflicts, and on the inside there were fears. Because what was going on at this time in Paul's life, he was with the church in Macedonia, and they are being persecuted, right? People are attacking them from the outside, but he says inside there was fears. And those fears is, that he's talking about is the fear that he had been too harsh in his letter. See, Paul was concerned that what he'd written in his letter was going to be too severe for the people, he was motivated out of love, and he was concerned, maybe I had gone too far in that letter. But we, Because we know that Paul was always honest about sin, right? In 1 Corinthians, we don't have this severe letter that he wrote, but in 1 Corinthians, it's all about Paul confronting the, the sins of the church of Corinth, right? He writes to them and says, you guys, you're all divided. You guys are filled with pride. You guys have this weird sexual practices going on in your church, and there's all this weird stuff going on in Corinth. And Paul is saying, cut it out. This is not okay. You guys cannot live like this. And yet, he's also worried about being too harsh. And I think that this really illustrates 
the fact that there is a balance when we confront sin. There's a balance. See, Paul was worried about being too harsh, but that didn't mean that he was silent. Right? He, he called out sin when he saw it, but his motivation was always out of grace. In other words, Paul spoke the truth in love. And for many of, this, many of us, we may not know what this is like. But for Paul, this is how he conducted himself. That's why he says in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Paul wasn't sitting there writing saying like, Yes, I'm going to destroy them as I point out all of the messed up things that they are doing. Right? He's not like a tabloid that is seeking to like expose the sins of the church of Corinth. Right? He's not the National Enquirer. Rather, he's trying to show them, these are things that you are doing wrong, but I want you to, to repent so that you might be healed. And I think for some of us, this may be very foreign, right? Maybe you have people in your life who you feel like they make it their job and their mission to point out every time you fail. Perhaps you feel like People rejoice when you do wrong because it gives them an opportunity to condemn you. But the reason that I'm pointing this out is because this is not Paul's goal here, and it's not my goal either. This passage here, it's this, as we're going to get into it, is a, it's a hard passage in the sense that it's, it's, it's calling us to a high calling. But I want you to know that Paul's heart and ultimately Christ's heart is, is one that confronts sin, but it's so that we might be healed. It's always done out of love and out of grace. The Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser. Satan is the one who accuses us, who condemns us, who makes it his job and his mission to point out when we fail. This is not the spirit of Christ. And so I want to come to you this evening as Paul came to the church of Corinth and he came in the spirit of Christ and he said, I want to show you where you may be failing, but I'm showing you so that you might be healed. Right? Paul, Paul even says himself, he says, now I rejoice, right? But at the end of verse 9, he says, for you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer from us, you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Paul said, I rejoice not because I hurt your feelings, because that was not my goal. I rejoice because in so doing, you repented, and as a result, you didn't lose anything. You gained. And for some of us, turning away from things that we cherish in our life that are wrong, it feels like we'd lose everything if we were to stop doing that. But Paul says, to turn is to find life. And so I just want to really make that clear as I preface this to know that this is not, as Paul is not speaking in a spirit of condemnation, right? But he's coming to support and to love the Corinthian church. But for all of us, we know that oftentimes repentance is not the result. How many of us have been shown wrongdoing in our life and the result isn't repentance, but instead it's hardening, right? Instead we kick against it. Or, we, or we, we may feel sorrow over it, but there's not the proper result. And so Paul here is going to show us, as he does in verse 10, that there are two responses to our sin. When sin happens in our life, and it will happen, and we realize it, or somebody points it out, there are two ways that we can respond. There are two different types of sorrows. 
as he says, a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. But what's so interesting about these two sorrows is that although they have different traits and they produce different results, oftentimes we confuse the two. And the reason that we confuse the two is because they have the same thing in common, sorrow. And it's easy to think that because I'm sad, therefore that's good. And so Paul here is is showing us that we can't just focus on our sorrow. We have to ask ourselves, what is driving that? What is behind that? Is it God or is it the world? And so the difference between those two things, as we're going to see, is as different as cats from dogs. They're completely two different things. And Paul wants to see see that sorrow isn't ultimately what matters. The question is, what is your sorrow producing? The question is, what is the effect of your sadness? What are the results of your tears? Because because all of our tears are not shed equally over sin. And so I think that it's true that all of us at some point in our life experience some sort of sadness, sorrow, shame, guilt over the wrongdoing that we do. I think that this is a common denominator in every single human experience. I think that all of us at some point in our life, perhaps you experience guilt because you lie to your parents about where you were, or you lie to your parents about what you were doing. Or perhaps it's when you use words to make other people feel insignificant so that you might feel secure in who you are. And you feel guilt about that because you know that that's not the way in which you should be speaking. Or perhaps you're impatient with people and you hate the fact that you're impatient with people, but you see those harsh words that come out and they bite and they hurt. Perhaps it's watching and listening, things, listening to things that you know promote darkness instead of light. Or perhaps it's simply that you just don't live up to your own standards. But in all of these situations, there's a sorrow that comes. There's a, a sense of a twinge of guilt or shame. And Paul is saying that, his point is that it's not sufficient to just be sad. You have to ask yourself, is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? And that's where I really want to focus a lot of our time here is discerning and determining how do we tell the difference between these two things. See, Paul here in in 2 Corinthians 7, he's rejoicing. He's excited because he sees that the Corinthians have expressed this godly sorrow. He says that it's a, a godly sorrow, by the grace of God, a godly sorrow that will produce repentance leading to salvation. And so the question for us is, what is this godly sorrow? How do we understand it? And I think the the best way that we can understand it by first is defining its opposite, worldly sorrow. And when you think about worldly sorrow, the, the, the thing that you can think about is, as the title suggests, worldly sorrow is concerned only with worldly things. Worldly sorrow is is a sorrow that is concerned only with the here and now. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let's use the example of me, right? We'll take my example of me cheating on my science quiz. When I cheated on my science quiz, the thing that I was expressing was a worldly sorrow. Why? Because I was sad because I got caught. I was sorrowful because I was afraid of how my parents are going to, uh, you know, reprimand me or going to respond. I'm filled with grief because my reputation as a good student is ruined, and I'm afraid of how my teacher is now going to think about me in the classroom. I'm sad because I just feel this guilt because I know what I did was wrong. But if you notice, in all of these different situations, the things that I'm concerned with 
are all related to the world and to how I feel about it. A great question. I love, uh, there's a Christian counselor by the name of Heath Lambert, and he asks this question. He says, the question isn't, are you sad? The question is, what are you sad about? The question is not, are you sad? The question is, what are you sad about? And the answer of worldly sorrow is, I'm sad because I've lost worldly things. I'm upset because I might potentially lose things that I deem as ultimately valuable to me. And so worldly sorrow, what happens is when, when you're confronted with the fact that you sinned, you're not sad about that. You're sad because it might mean that you might lose a good grade. It might mean that you're going to lose a relationship. It might mean that your reputation is going to be tarnished or damaged, or your comfort is going to be unsettled. Your security is going to be disrupted. And so that's why you're sad. And in each of these situations, it can be good things, it could be bad stuff, but the point is you're concerned simply, we are concerned simply with stuff. We're sad because our stuff is threatened. We're not sad because we've sinned. We're sad because this might mean I might lose something that I value. God is completely absent from this worldly sorrow. There's no fear or love of God. There's only fear of losing the stuff you love, right? We, we, don't, have, we don't ever ask, how does this affect my Lord? We only ask, how does this affect my life? We're not concerned with how God may, may feel about the way that we've been acting. All we care about is the fact that our way of living has been disrupted, and we don't like it. And so we're sad so we're sorrowful. And Paul is saying that that is not the correct understanding. Right? There's, we're not trusting in God's mercy or his sovereignty over our situation. We're just hoping that the pain and the, and the punishment are going to kind of pass over so we can get back to it. Right? I think of my example with, with, with that, that science class. I just, all I wanted was it to be over. I just wanted my teacher to leave me alone. I wanted my parents to leave me alone. I wasn't really upset with what I had done. I just hated how I felt. And the evidence of that is because as soon as I felt better, I just went back to cheating. Because it was never about cheating. It was about the fact that I, I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like that things were being threatened in my life. And, and, and Paul is saying that this, this type of sorrow, this leads to death. And so here, Paul is giving us this, the, the essence, the, the, the principle of what worldly sorrow is. But throughout Scripture, we see this practice throughout. I think especially at the end of Matthew's Gospel, you have Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of the disciples of Jesus, and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, right, Judas all of a sudden realizes what he's done. He realizes how much of an idiot he is, that he's just betrayed Jesus, that he looks like a fool, and he runs back to the, to the people and says, here, take the money back. I don't want it. I don't want it. And they won't take it from him, and he goes and he, he commits suicide. He was filled with worldly sorrow. It was a sorrow that did not lead unto repentance, but it quite literally led unto death. Because he wasn't concerned with what he had done. He was just concerned with the fact of how he felt. All he saw was, well, this stinks. 
He was not asking the question, how does this affect my Lord? And so for some of you, you may think, well, Judas, like, come on, Judas, the, the son of perdition. Like, I'm not Judas, okay? You know, how does, how does this apply, you know? Well, I was, I was, I was thinking about this. I, for those who have been watching the news, I think this is a very relevant topic. Right now in our culture, there are a lot of powerful people who are being uncovered, both in Hollywood and political spheres, who are being uncovered for the shameful acts that they have done. Right? You think of the Senator Roy Moore, and it all started, right, we move all the way back to, this, to Harvey Weinstein, for those who have been following or familiar with this. Right? Harvey Weinstein, in the beginning of October, this big, powerful director, the New York Times writes this huge article exposing him as a predator. And so Harvey Weinstein, as all of this stuff is coming out, all this stuff is being revealed, the Atlantic, in the, in the article in the Atlantic, it has a headline that kind of sums up how he responds. They say, quote, first came the denials, then came the apologies. Now, Harvey Weinstein is claiming, quote, a different recollection of the events. See, at first, when, I, when these things start coming up, he denies it, right? I can think of myself. When my teacher told me I cheated, I denied it. Well, you know, coincidence, right? But then as, as more evidence comes out, he's like, okay, I, ha- I guess I have to apologize now. And if you read the apology, which it's very strange, he quotes Jay-Z in it. He, he blames the fact that he grew up in the 60s. He uh, makes a joke about the NRA and Donald Trump. And we're talking about young women who have been sexually harassed. And, and, he's, and you don't see any type of remorse there. And then it says what? It says he has a different recollection of the events. Now he's saying, well, I don't remember it really happening like that. What's going on? This man may be upset that he's lost his job, his reputation has been ruined, he's lost his career, but there's no repentance. It's all about him. If you read the apology, it all is about him. He never mentions his wife, he never mentions his kids, he never mentions the women and this, all these settlements that he had. This is worldly sorrow. And Paul is telling us that this type of sorrow leads to death. There is no life there. There's no life there. So, as we see here, if this is what worldly sorrow is, godly sorrow, of course, is completely different. Godly sorrow is concerned with entirely different things. In fact, it's probably more appropriate to say that godly sorrow is, entire, is, is concerned with an entirely different person. See, worldly sorrow is concerned with one person, me. Godly sorrow is concerned with one person, and that is namely, as the title suggests once more, God himself. And see, this brings us back to this question that I, that I really, I hope that you can, can meditate about and think about and, and apply it and ask yourself in situations in which you're faced with, with the sin in your life. Ask myself, ask yourself, it's not, sorry, ask yourself the question, not are you sad, Ask yourself, what are you sad about? Because I think it's easy. I, I, I can be honest with you. There, I remember times where I thought sadness equaled repentance. If I'm sad about my sin, God must feel like, oh, you cried enough tears, and therefore, you're good to go. But the whole point of Scripture, right, there's the, the hymn that says, my tears no respite know. 
right? Or my tears forever flow, right? And, he's, and the, hymn, the hymnist is saying, I could cry forever, and it wouldn't matter, right? Because unless our tears are mingled with the blood of Jesus Christ, they mean nothing. Even our tears have to be tinged with grace, with grace, the grace of God seen in his Son. And so again, the question is, what are you sad about? And the answer of godly sorrow is, I am grieved because I've sinned against God. I am sad because of the seriousness of my sin before a loving, righteous, and merciful God. My heart is, it is heavy because I've broken God's commandment, which means, in effect, I have broken the heart of God. And what godly sorrow does is it recognizes the seriousness of our sin. Because it knows that sin is the thing that separates us from God. And God is the thing which you and I need more than anything else in this world. The Heidelberg Catechism says, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? How would you answer that question? Don't tell me. Think about it. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the main purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? And you know what the answer is? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And what sin does is it destroys both of those things. If you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him, what sin does is it glorifies you and it leaves you with no joy, only bitterness. Right? You may experience pleasure for a season, right? But, but the, its end is death, right? And so Paul is saying here that, that the chief end, or not Paul isn't saying that, but I'm saying that extracting out, the chief end is to enjoy God, to glorify God. But if sin is in our lives, that is destroying our purpose. And so when we sin, the first response should be looking to God and, and realizing that that is the issue. And once more, this is the principle, but we see this laid out in Scripture. Think about King David. Right, you think about King David, those of you who are familiar with the story, for those who are not, I'm just going to go through it briefly. King David is the most powerful king of Israel at the time. A man of great wealth, a man of great power. And there's a point in his life where he's sitting in his home, in his palace, and he sees this woman, right, bathing. And, what, and this just spirals downhill from there. And what happens from there is he ends up getting an innocent man killed, and then he commits adultery, right, with his wife. So super twisted, super messed up, right? But David, he's powerful. Who's going to confront him? You're, you're the king, right? No one can really confront you. But there's this one guy, Nathan. And, and God tells Nathan, Nathan, you need to go show David. You need to point out his sin, just like Paul is doing here with the Corinthians. And so Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story about this rich man who had a bunch of sheep and there's this poor guy who has one sheep and the rich guy steals the one guy, the one poor guy's sheep. And David is outraged. He says, who is this man? And you know what Nathan says? He says, you are that man. Yikes. But how does David respond? Because there's a, lot of way, there's a lot of ways that this could go. David could say, darn it, this means that you're going to take my kingdom from me. 
Well, this stinks. Now everybody knows I'm a, 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 you know, a, a sleazeball. David could say, oh, my goodness. Please. Hey, Nathan, between you and me, I'm going to repent, go to the temple, do my sacrifices, but let's keep this between you and me. No. How does David respond? How does David respond? 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. David's first response is to recognize that the evil that he has committed is first and foremost against God. And we see this in the Psalms as David is meditating on this whole scenario in this life, this whole situation. He writes Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is the prayer of a broken heart. And you know what? David says, he says in verse 3, he says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me against you. You alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. What David understood, I pray that all of us would understand, is that all of our sin, first and foremost, is not against one another. It's against God. And you may ask the question like, wait a second, hold up. He got somebody killed, and then he knocked up his, his wife. He definitely sinned against other people, right? And that's true. But before he sinned against them, he sinned against God. And this is why. The first commandment says this. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then after that, you have commandments 2 through 10, right? And they talk about honoring your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, right? All these things. The reason that you break commandments 2 through 10 is because you first break commandment number 1. You see, the reason that David broke commandments 6 and 7, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, is because he broke the first one. He was putting something else before God. David was worshiping his pleasure and his comfort more then he cared about God. And so as a result, it led him to kill and it led him to commit adultery. And that's what happens. Whenever you, listen, this is so important. Whenever you look to something else besides God to find your happiness and your hope and your security and your significance, what it will result to is the breaking of commandments 3 through 10, 2 through 10. Because what's going to happen is, is when somebody threatens the thing that you want, you're going to be filled with anger. Or when you don't get what you want, you're going to be filled with depression. Or you're going to be so driven to get what you want that you just totally don't see other people around you. And this is what idolatry is, and this is what sin is. Sin is elevating something other than God to the place of God. And that's why every time you sin, it is first and foremost against God. And so, yes, David had a lot of repenting to and apologizing to do to, to Uriah, he's dead, but to the family, right, to Bathsheba. He had wronged them, but all of that was a result of the fact that he had made something else his God, namely his own passions, his own pleasures. And so the other question that you may think, well, well does that mean that we shouldn't be sad about the things that we lose? Should we only be sad about the fact that we've sinned against God? No, I think that there's a very realistic sense in which we should grieve over the fact that things have been lost, that things have been broken. It's natural that when we sin and we see a, a person hurt by it, that we should be sorrowful that that is the result of what we've done. 
I should be sad that when I cheat on my test, my parents have to go to my teacher and say, yeah, sorry about our son being a cheat. Right? There, that is an appropriate response. But the point is, is that the heart that is filled with, with godly sorrow, the primary groan of your heart is going to be, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's from there that all of these other things flow. And so these here, these are the possible responses. And by God's grace, right, the Corinthians respond with godly sorrow. And I would pray to, to God that all of us would respond in such a way. But notice the results of this action. As we've already seen, right, worldly sorrow leads to death. But godly sorrow, Paul says, he says in verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. He says it produces repentance leading to salvation. But what does that mean practically? How do you know if your life is marked by godly sorrow? Well, first of all, as we've already seen, it's by having the reaction that you recognize all of our sin is first and foremost against God. But Paul gets even more practical on that because in verse 11, he lists seven marks of a person who possesses godly sorrow. He says, if you have a godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to life, you're going to have these seven things in your life, right? Look at verse 11. He says, and not, uh, that's verse 7. Verse 11, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. And now I'm not going to go through all seven of them, but I would like to point out three of them because I want you guys to have some practical ways in which you can really search your own heart and your own life and ask myself, ask ourselves, do we have a godly sorrow that is leading to repentance and, and life, or do we have a worldly sorrow that's producing death? And this is important, right? We're talking about the difference between life and, life and death. Normally, we, we think those things are important, right? And Paul thinks this is important. And the scriptures thinks this is important. So let's, let's really, I, I pray that you would really hone in here as we think, just briefly look at these three things. The first thing I want you to notice is he says, what indignation? What indignation? That word indignation is expressing a raw anger, a raw hatred for. And the first mark of godly sorrow is that we have hatred of sin's presence in our lives. And that means that we change our mind about sin. See, one of, the, one of the main ways in which we understand repentance is we understand it as a change of mind. Repentance means that we are res resolutely opposed to sin. It means that what God says about sin, we believe. And that's a hard thing to do. How many of you have felt, have seen things in your life where God is saying, this is wrong, and you say, I don't care? That's what we are by nature. God points these things out and we say, don't really feel like doing that. But godly sorrow says, God, what you say about sin, I accept, regardless of how I feel or what I think. And I'm going to hate every part of it, every piece of it in my life. And this is such a big difference because if you have a worldly sorrow, you don't hate sin. What you hate is its consequences. And ask yourself that. Do, do, I, do I hate sin or do I just hate how it makes me feel? 
Do I hate sin because of what it does to my relationship with Christ, or do I hate it because it just really ruins my day? And I hate the fact that I might get caught, and it might ruin certain things about my life. But repentance always seeks out sin, and it's a seek-and-destroy mission, right? It always is a seek-and-destroy. As, as David prayed, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so just that first point, asking yourself, do you hate, being, get it, do you hate getting caught, or do you hate sin? Because that, the difference between those two things is the difference between life and death. The second thing that he points out is he says, he starts out by saying, uh, what diligence it produced in you. So not only did it produce this indig- indignant hatred for sin, but it produced diligence. In other words, there is an eagerness to live rightly. Repentance is not only, it does not only mean that we change our mind, but it means we change directions. Right? So not only do we change our mind about sin, but we change the direction of our life. And it means that not only do we hate sin, but we are actively seeking to live rightly. Are you actively seeking to live rightly? Or are you kind of hoping it's just going to happen by osmosis, right? Like, I will passively become a better person, right? Unfortunately, that's not how it works, right? All of us know that we do not just automatically, like, become better people. We are just so prone to wrongdoing. It's just a part of who we are. And so Paul is saying, not only must you hate sin, but you must be taking steps to be diligently seeking, eagerly seeking to live in holiness. As the Puritans say, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. We must be killing sin or it will be killing us. That's intense. That's intense. But it's true, right? Paul says elsewhere, by the Spirit, if you so put the deeds put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? The mortification of sin. They use the the big old words, right? No one uses those words anymore. But anyways, but I think it's important to point out that 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 doesn't mean that we don't ever struggle. Because you may be thinking like, okay, I, I, I do believe that I hate sin. I hate it in my life. I am trying to live rightly. But if you were to see my life, you might think that that were not true. And so I want to encourage you by saying, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle right? And I think there's a helpful question that you can ask yourself to really determine where am I at? Where am I at in this? And J.D. Greer, he's a pastor, he frames it very nicely. He says this, the question isn't will you fall? The question is what will you do when you fall? The question isn't will you fall? Because you will. The question is what will you do when you fall? The question isn't Are you never going to sin? You are. The question is, when you sin, what do you do next? What do you do next? And that will tell you a lot about where your heart is. See, Proverbs 24, 16, it says, A righteous man may fall seven times, but will rise again. I love that Proverbs, right? The wisdom of Solomon. He's saying, a righteous man, a righteous man, he will fall seven times. That's a lot. In biblical words, when, when they use the word seven, it's, it's the word of completion, right? It means that, right, when, when Peter and Jesus says, forgive him 70 times 70, it's like forever. And so the proverb is saying, a righteous man, he's going to fall. You are going to fall, but he will rise again. And this is the exact opposite of worldly sorrow because worldly sorrow, it paralyzes you. 
right? Worldly sorrow, when you sin and you get caught, what do you do? You throw the grand old pity party, right? And woe is me, and no one understands me. What are people going to think of me? It stinks to be me. Me, me, right? And the list goes on, right? Sorry, didn't mean to get a little theatrical there. Um, But the point of worldly sorrow is that it paralyzes you. You find yourself wallowing in your tears, right? Just crying, oh, this is going to ruin my chance at this or X or Y or Z, and, and you're only thinking about yourself. But godly sorrow, it drives us to act. It drives us to act because we see our sin for what it really is, and, and it, it causes us to diligently repent and run towards Christ. It's always, godly sorrow will always lead to change in your life. Now, you may be asking, but wait a second. It's been years, and I still struggle with the same thing. Well, good news. The good news is, is that the process of change may look slower or faster from life to life, but change is always taking place. I love, there's a a part in C.S. Lewis, he talks about this idea where you may have somebody who you think is just like really jacked up, right? You, when you look at your li- their life, you're like, wow, this person is like messed up. They are A plus sinner, right? And C.S. Lewis says, you don't know that they may be winning victories in their life that in your life you're not even thinking about. But for them, from God's perspective, it's like they've just taken over the world. Perhaps there is somebody who is, who is, um, who is um, struggling with anger. And for them, just to, you know, only use one curse word instead of five as they normally do, that's a step in the right direction. And God is pleased with that. But from your perspective, you're like, who is this? I never curse. Who, who is this person? Because you don't see things the way God sees things. And so be wary of how you judge other people, but make sure that you're searching your own heart and asking yourself, God, what do you expect of me? Because change should be taking place. And it, it's, it's not as important about how fast it happens, but the, the question is, is it happening? Or are you paralyzed in your worldly sorrow? And this is such a vital thing that we should be moving forward, moving in the proper direction. And finally, and this is the last point, and we're going to close here. He says this. He says, what fear? What fear? Fear? Seems like a strange word to use, right? What fear? But what Paul is talking about, as you see throughout the scripture, is this idea of the fear of God. But then the next question is, well, what in the world is the fear of God? And what does that have to do with repentance that leads unto life? How is it related? Well, if we look at Scripture and we look at this phrase, the fear of God, what you're going to see is that the biblical understanding of fearing God is not that you are scared of him. Although we are reverent and in and, and, and awe of him, but it does not mean to be scared of him. But ultimately, what it means to fear God is this. As Pastor Timothy Keller puts it, he says, to fear God means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. What does it mean to fear God? It means to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. 
do you know what he's talking about? Because I think for a lot of us, we hear something like that, and it sounds foreign. Do you know what it means to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love? What is the thing that holds you in wonder? What is the thing that captivates your heart and your love? What is the thing that you treasure and you prize above everything else? Paul is telling us, and the fear of the Lord is that it's to be overwhelmed with him. To be overwhelmed by his greatness and his love. And I think that, I think that if we understand this, we will be able to understand how to live a life of godly sorrow. Because God, when you think about God, right, God is holy. He is perfect. He is so unlike us. And in our worldly sorrow, we're always concerned with what other people think. But God knew our sin, and he knows our sin. He sees us to the bottom, right? All of our arrogance, our pride, our greed, all the things that people may never even see, God knows them. And as we mentioned earlier, God not only knows them, but when we do them, we're, we're doing that against him. See, when we're prideful, what we're really saying is, I want to be God. When, we, when, we're, when we're greedy, what we're saying is, God, you don't give me enough. When we're, when we're selfish, what we're saying is, God, I, I don't want to be generous towards you, but we hoard and, we, and we, we keep everything to ourselves. And yet, and yet, God... In an act of divine mercy, in an act of divine mercy, instead of us receiving the punishment that, that we deserve, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, he took the punishment upon himself. Out of mercy and love, Christ stands in our place. And I think that for a lot of us, we just don't think we're that bad. Be honest with yourself. You read about how the Bible talks about sin. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all. Who can know it? And we're like, who is he talking about? And I think that for, I mean, I'm just, I'm being honest. I just, there's a lot of times where I don't think I'm that bad. And yet scripture gives us this diagnosis and it tells us you are bad. And I, and I want you to think about this. If you feel that way, if you feel like, well, I, I know that I feel guilt and shame. I know I do things wrong, but I'm not that bad. The cross will stop you in your tracks. Because what does the cross say? The cross says, your sin was so bad that I, God, had to come into your earth and be crucified by you because that's how bad your sin was. You want to know how bad sin is? Look at the cross. And what do you see? You see a bloody Savior condemned in our place. That's how serious, serious our sin is. Martin Luther, he said that all of us carry the, the nails of the cross in our pockets. What is he saying? He's saying all of us carry the nails of the cross in our pocket because it's us who put Christ on the cross. And yet, God went there willingly, out of love, right? Christ was not, he was not compelled. He wasn't forced. It wasn't divine child abuse. Jesus said, I will willingly go to the cross 
for you because you can't do this by yourself. And I think that when, when you and I start to understand the seriousness of our sins and the loving grace of Jesus Christ, it will cause you to tremble in awe and wonder as you think about who he is and what he's done. And I pray that you guys would see that. And unfortunately, I don't have the power to do that. But I pray that God would show you the, the beauty and the power of the cross and that it would, as, as Keller says, that it would, it would overwhelm you with wonder. That you would be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. And so to fear the Lord, this last point, it is so vital. Because it means to bow before him in amazement and wonder. It means to see him as beautiful. And I think that when that happens, every time you sin, you will hate it. When that happens, every time you sin, you will desire to run in the opposite of direction. Because you look at the cross and you say, this is what put him there. I hate that. Let me ask you something. If your parents were killed in a drunk driving accident, would you ever drink and drive? No. Jesus Christ was killed in a sin accident. How can we go on sinning like it doesn't matter? That doesn't make sense, right? We wouldn't do that in any other area of our life, so why would we do that towards the Son of God? And so Christ is calling us and saying, look at what sin has done. It has separated you from the most vital relationship, the thing that you need more than anything. And yet I've come to repair the breach. I've come to bridge the gap that you might be brought back unto me and so that the purpose of life to glorify me and to enjoy me might be restored. And every time you fail, it's okay, repent, and I will forgive you. And what does Paul say in closing? He says, verse 10, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. My friends, you will never regret repentance. I think that for a lot of us, we see sin in our lives, and we know that, that leaving that sin is going to cost us. And we are so afraid of what it's going to cost us. And we love our comfort. We love our security. We love our, our pleasure. We love all these things more than we love Christ. But Christ is saying, Paul is reminding us, you will never regret this. I want to close with this illustration. How many of you have ever gotten like a cut on your arm and your mom pulls out the hydrogen peroxide and you're like, oh Lord, no, not the hydrogen peroxide, not the burn, right? But you still love the white foam that comes out. I love the white foam. So you see, what's going on there, right? Hydrogen peroxide, you have this gaping wound on your arm, you pour hydrogen peroxide in, and it burns, but what is it doing? It's healing you. That's exactly what repentance is. You see, to look at your sin, to turn away from your sin, it's going to burn, it's going to hurt, it's going to sting, but the result is healing. And that's what Christ is calling you to. He's calling you to be healed, to be healed. He's saying you don't have to live like this. The shame and the guilt that you know does not need to be a thing. And so although it is painful, come to Christ. Say, Lord, forgive me. Feel the burn, right? Christ, feel the burn. <laughs> that totally killed it. So I've heard it before, uh, this. The gospel must harm you before it can heal you. Let it harm you so that you might be healed. Let's pray.